Es un asunto en el que la sociedad civil siempre ha jugado un papel fundamental. La sociedad civil. Civil society. The Grassroots View, an EESC podcast. In this edition of the Grassroots View, we're considering the impact of the energy crisis on our daily lives. At the end of last year, COP26 focused our minds on climate and energy. But since then, Russia has invaded Ukraine, and there's a new political reality on the continent of Europe. Already, up to one in four households in the EU cannot afford to adequately heat, cool or light their homes. And prices continue to rise. Where do we go from here? And what does it all mean in particular for the poorest in society? I'm joined today by an energy expert from the EESC, an energy journalist, an anti-poverty campaigner and a representative from a leading think tank. First up, I have Elena Mastantuono, the member of the Economic and Social Committee representing the Czech Chamber of Commerce, who takes a particular interest in energy policy. Elena, what's the view from where you sit? We live in a new political reality. The more you go east in the European Union, you will hear that we live in a war in which Russia's weapon is the energy, mainly the gas. The risk that Russia stops its gas exports to the EU in the next weeks is very high and the concerns are serious. Russian gas company Gazprom, which owns the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, announced its annual maintenance to run from 11th to 22nd July. And some fear that this temporary shutdown could become permanent. This is to say that Kremlin might plan to shut down Europe's largest gas pipeline that runs under the Baltic Sea from Russia to Germany. And Germany is not only the biggest consumer of Russian gas in Europe, but is also the biggest re-exporter of Russian gas to other European countries, including the mine. Thanks, Elena. Thomas Doge is Managing Director of Confrontation Europe, the Paris-based think tank, Thomas, your take on this one. I would say first that uh, the war is actually amplifying a trend that was pre-existing it. After, in the post-COVID-19 uh, recovery period, I would say, hydrocarbons prices were already skyrocketing. And um, so it's mainly uh, due to the fact that uh, emerging economies were growing uh, much faster than uh, in the pre-COVID-19 period. And uh, so the war is uh, piling up uh, on top of it and accelerating a trend that was already uh, starting in uh, late 2021. For the war in itself, uh, I would say the first, uh, the first reality we're, we're, we are in is that uh, as Europeans, but as Westerners, uh, we are realizing that we are actually living in a finite world, I would say with uh, li limited access to, to resources and that we, we can't uh, just invent um, hydrocarbons as we could create from uh, scratch uh, financial products or, or uh, like, I mean, services products uh, uh, in general. Okay, a finite world indeed. Sabrina Yanatsoni, you're an analyst at the European Anti-Poverty Network. What does all this mean for those on the lowest incomes? So the situation was already quite critical. 
uh, and the recent uh, situation in Ukraine only uh, aggravated the problem, uh, as Russia, as we know, is the main uh, use supplier of fossil fuels. Uh, as a result, consumers are and will continue to be affected very hard, hardly by uh, high gas and electricity bills. Uh, the rising price of gas has had an impact on low-income households, for example, uh, due to their growing dependency on gas, also for electricity, uh, and their inadequate access to renewable and renovation programs to make their home energy efficient. Vulnerable consumers, unfortunately, are more and more at risk of energy poverty. Energy poverty uh, derives from a combination of structural inequalities and causes, for example, income poverty, inadequate housing, and unfair energy prices. All of these causes result in the inability of users to access essential energy services at an affordable price. Thanks, Sabrina. My fourth guest is Sonia Van Rensen, Editor-in-Chief of the newsletter Energy Monitor. Sonia, do you think up to a point climate and energy have been rather on separate tracks that don't join? I think so. Um, so traditionally, you have these three pillars to energy policy, sustainability, affordability, security. And I think different themes have dominated at different times, but you rarely see all three you know, going together hand in hand. I think the crisis forces them to be thought of together in a way that hasn't happened before. You've suddenly, I think gas has always been a, a particularly sensitive topic in the energy transition and in the climate discussion. Things like coal, a lot of people can see that coal is dirty and polluting and agree that structurally it, it doesn't have a long-term future. The role of gas has always been much more nuanced. And what's happened now is you have, um, you suddenly have gas in, in the spotlight. Gas was for many people supposed to be the transition fuel that got us towards climate neutrality, helped us get there. And suddenly gas has become a great big problem. An important part of Europe's response to the energy crisis is repower EU. Elena Mastantuono for the EESC. What's your take on Repower EU? The plan has its limits. First and foremost, the decision when we will phase out Russian gas does not lie in our hands. And it is difficult to predict whether the EU member states will be able to agree on a common European response in case of an abrupt interruption in Russian gas supplies. In such a scenario, Czech presidency will have to moderate the debate and avoid that member states act individually and close their energy market border. Second, it does not take into account that rollout of renewables has technical, economical and regulatory, but also human barriers. The boom in demand for heat pumps and solar panels combined with supply chain disruptions in my country, the Czech Republic, mean that anyone wanting to opt for clean technology is in for a lengthy way. Thirdly, the share of the burden in energy saving is not well balanced. The responsibility must be shared. Now, our focus on the grassroots view is the ordinary citizen's perspective. So let's take a look at that. Sonia van Rensen, what do you think all this means for consumers? 
probably not much good news there. I think we're going to see um, expensive energy bills for the next couple of years. The scenarios I've seen, they've always said energy is not going to get cheaper. It's going to get more expensive, whether you you know pursue the kind of energy mix we've had to date or whether you go for something cleaner and greener. What we've seen now is a, a massive rise in, in energy bills that I don't think you can I mean, you can cut back on anytime soon. All, all of the options are going to be expensive. Thomas Dorje, same question to you. Hydrocarbons are getting uh, uh, more and more expensive. That's a fact because just of the, the reduction of the, of the global stocks, so and of the global supply. So prices will rise. And uh, so this is a huge scale re- rehearsal of the next 30 years. And so we'll have, in some ways, to adapt our consumption to our consumption uh, levels, and we'll have to implement some kind of sobriety of scarcity, organized scarcity of our energy consumption. And this could be efficient at uh, an individual level, so every each and every one of us can do some kind of adaptation in its way of life, and collectively we can do a bit more in the in the, the frame of our companies, or our associations, of our local governments, to reduce individually our energy consumption. So it's not the most optimistic vision just before the holidays, but I would say this is what we're left with. For, for the next months, right? Not optimistic. And perhaps one of the factors behind the increase in the amount of direct action from people protesting about the energy crisis. Leaving aside the rights and wrongs of public protest, are they already too late? Have we passed the point of no return? Sabrina Yanatsone at EAPN. That's a very good question. Thank you. I think that the main point of climate actions uh, is that citizens uh, want to feel empowered in their life, want to become actors for change, not only recipients of top-down policies, uh, which have not met their needs so far. Um, I think citizens are now uh, more than ever aware of the least of the fact that the least responsible for the climate change is paying the higher prices. First of all, in the the sort of short to medium term, two or three years. Mm-hmm. Over the next two or three years, what do you think the priorities should be? Mm. The policy priorities at two yeah. level. Yeah. I think it's crucial to bring uh, more policy coherence in the design of of policies at all levels, European, national and and local level. Unfortunately, in the next few years, we will be faced uh, with the cost of and the constant contradiction of short-term policies with no long-term structural uh, changes to the benefit of uh, citizens. In the short term, it's essential to uh, reduce uh, the electricity and gas bills for vulnerable consumers. Uh, But it's also important to prepare the ground for the transition towards climate neutrality. In the plenary session of July, for example, uh, members of the European Parliament have just backed the Commission proposal to include gas and nuclear activities uh, as environmental sustainable economic activities. Elena? In this very tense and confused picture, what are 
your priorities at the Economic and Social Committee going to be in the, the relatively short term? And by that, I mean the next sort of three years or so. What for you are the things we need to do first? I think that in, in the next months, in the short term scenario, we will be really looking on emergency measures, how to secure that everyone has an access to energy. And as I said, also to ensure that the prices are not so inflated like they are. And look further ahead for me, if you will, my last question really, how would you see the European energy landscape in say 10 years time? Will it be a pretty picture? I wish that after 2030, the majority of energy sources in the EU's energy mix come from safe and sustainable low-carbon energy, and that it is able to satisfy the demand on the market. We should not forget that each member state has different conditions, and the speed of decarbonization will be still different after 2030. However, if we go too fast, we risk to lose the society and hamper the economy. If we go too slow, then the progress toward climate neutrality will be minimal. We have to choose the golden middle way for the green transition, which will bring the biggest effect for the environment and minimize the pressure on jobs and citizens. The picture can be pretty if all elements are well balanced. Sonia van Rensen, paint me your picture of the energy landscape in 10 years' time. I think that's probably a, an impossible question to answer. <laughs> Will it be prettier? Um, well, could it get much, much worse than today? I guess uh, we'll see. We'll see in winter what happens. Um, I would say for me, what's characterized the, the energy landscape, and I've been an energy journalist for many years now, is that it should in parts by, by policy, certainly clean energy, if you think of the Paris Agreement and so on. But as much or probably more than that, it's shaped by these completely unexpected events. If you think of the, the 1973 oil crisis, you think of Fukushima, think of the US shale gas revolution. It's, it's those events that have really shaped the world of energy and, and now the, the Russia-Ukraine war and uh, COVID is another one. So, and those are events that are impossible to predict. So I expect those events, you know, will decide where we're going to be 10 years from now, more so, I guess, than the, the decisions we, um, we take today. And finally, Sabrina Yanatsoni. It will probably look like a blurry picture with uh, probably increasing group polarization uh, at social and political level. As, as I uh, as said before, uh, I don't believe there will be a structural change um, in the energy landscape, uh, we will still be using uh, gas, uh, although there are some measures to ban uh, fossil fuel uh, subsidies. Carbon pricing in the build and road transport will help still to reduce emissions. And uh, when we talk about carbon pricing, for example, this has disproportionate impact on vulnerable people. Those that live at the moment in buildings with carbon-intensive uh, eating system, and also on users that depend on fossil fuel vehicles. Thanks, Sabrina, and thanks to all my guests today. You can find our podcasts on our website, eesc.europa.eu. And do please join us again soon when we take a look at the world 
from the grassroots view. 